Welcome to Nighttime Logic, the parts of the story that are felt but not rationally processed. Tonight is Wednesday, June, 9, June 12, 2019. We're in KGB Bar in New York City, surrounded by fans of the great Jeff Ford. <laughs> Woohoo! I'm Daniel Brom, your host. We're going to get right into it. Please give a warm welcome to tonight's guest, the one and only Jeffrey Ford. So tonight's format uh, is going to be two interview sections, two short interviews. And following the first interview, Jeff is going to uh, introduce and read to you uh, from a new forthcoming story. Jeff, can you? Normally, I don't like to start at the beginning, but I was a, I, I was a student of Jeff's this past week. Um, took a workshop with him, and taking a workshop with Jeff, basically everything that I thought I was going to ask went right out the window, <laughs> in, in in the best of possible ways. But so these questions might seem, you know, rep repetitive, but there's there's a method to them. But can you tell us what it was like when you were young and growing up in a family and with a dad who read you? Great literature, quote unquote, as uh, bedtime stories. And how did that influence you? Well, I uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody for coming. I mean, even the, these people I worked with for like 25 years, they've heard my bullshit so many times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and still they came out. <laughs> so thank you. And all Lynn's nurses and everybody else who's here, my usual friends, Rick and uh, Amy and all the other people at David. And Ellen. Oh, yeah, Ellen, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and in the back, big sis. So it's, uh, it's great to be here. Anyway, we're talking about um, when I was a kid, how I got interested in writing. And the way I got interested in it is my father, who was a machinist, used to come home at night. And before he ate dinner, uh, <laughs> he would come upstairs and he would read to me and my brother in this bed, right? And we were young. But he only read to us 19th century novels, like adult <laughs> novels. So, like, he had this set of books, the great books of the world, like, you know, a little red-bound set. You've probably seen them around in book sales and stuff. And then he would read those to us, and I was like the only kid on the block who knew who Theophil Gordier was, <laughs> you know? But anyway, I think it was like a Ryder Haggard story. And uh, it clicked with me, and I saw the images so clearly in my mind, so vibrantly, that I couldn't get them out of my head, and I wanted to be able to do that when I grew up. Like, that was something I wanted to be able to emulate, being able to do that. So that's how I got interested in writing. And, you know, we had people in the family who, like my grandmother, recited a lot of poetry, and... Um, there was a lot of storytelling. My grandmother, my grandfather, on Sunday mornings would sit around the table and there would be a big soup bowl. That's what they flicked the ashes in, you know? A big urn of coffee. And it would go into the afternoon of everybody telling stories. Ghost stories, you know, things that happened to them when they were young. Oh, what happened to this person? My grandmother's uh, answer to what happened to that person was always, hey, they eventually died. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, knowing that, and as soon as, soon as I heard that, it, um, it it made your method, or at least with the way you were teaching, all, all fall into place. Like you told, um, 
when you told your students when as you were describing a method, or at least the way that you were writing, is you would close your eyes and pick a character and find a character, and then you would um, you would follow this character and simply write down what they were doing. Can you elaborate on that and how that works for you, Jeff? Yeah. That was, uh, that was something I got from studying with John Gardner, who some of you might know through Grendel and uh, Sunlight Dialogues, those books. And what he told us was, um, you know, just concentrate on the character, find a character, because he thought character was story. And he said, find a character, follow the character in your mind's eye. And he said, eventually, the character will take you to the story, uh, if you follow the character, you know. And then... If your craft and your writing ability is honed and good enough, all you need to do is record what you see, hear, feel, taste, and touch in that situation, and you'll get a story. Now, I've done this process with uh, different classes I've done, and there's always people always come up with the most unusual stuff, I mean, that they hadn't have thought, thought of before. So it's really an anti you know, uh, intellectual process, which is perfect for me, you know? <laughs> and uh, that's the way I basically come up. I don't take any notes when I write, even novels. I just get an idea, and I might do some research for the time period, like the historical stuff, but I just get an idea, and then I follow it. And what I find is, uh, if you really strong, have a strong vision of it, as you push into the fiction... The harder you push into it and the further you go imagining the stuff, the fiction will open up in front of you wider, you know what I mean? And you can see more and know more about what's going on around you. And it's, um, yeah, it's kind of a mysterious process, but uh, that's the way I approach it. And I mean, it allows me to come up with some unusual uh, storylines sometimes, you know. It's just amazing to hear that. It's just like, you, you know, we laugh, we said it's... Um an anti-intellectual process, but you know it, it, it really is. And, and you know, as a student or as a new writer, I, at first, uh, when first hearing that, I was like, "That's really challenging." It's like go back to the beginning before you learned everything. So the thing that you said, um, you also said, once you have the voice, once you know, you you Jeff have the voice, you know you have the story. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, you want what you want to do is uh, once you have, once I have the voice, I can start writing. You know, I could see it and everything, but. You have to un I have to know what the voice is that the story is going to be told in. Is it third person? Is it first person? Is it like comical? Is it whatever? Once that comes to me, and again, another mysterious process, but once I get that, then I can write. And, you know, um, that's why we did these uh, exercises with uh, uh, sentence structure, because if you're a master of sentence structure, you can manipulate... The, uh, the, the, the structures of sentences so that you can emulate the authorial voice that you want to get. So it, it flows like music. And if you could write long, short sentences and, you know, and, and, and uh, manipulate them around, you can capture that voice. And then if you capture that voice, you'll capture the, the character in the situation. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's basically the idea. Oh, yeah, it, it makes sense. But, it, it, yeah, it also helps when... You know, you're Jeff Ford, and you have the command. The I mean, money. anybody could do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Any, anybody, anybody can do this. You just have to be aware of that the possibility exists. I remember uh, Gardner telling us, you know, all those things you think you got to do. Actually, there's a li there's actually a little movie of him saying this online at some place on on YouTube or something. He goes, you know, all those things you think you got to do. You don't got to do them. <laughs> you know, because the simplest thing is to just tell a story. You do it when you're a kid automatically. 
And then you go and take an MFA program and they make it seem impossible. You have to do this, you got to read these six books here, you got to do this. I mean, all you got to really do is tell a story, you know? So. Can we talk about, um, you mentioned you were doing the exercises along with your students and um, you were making little notes and you had little fragments of a story in process, which seems, is that before? Do you want to talk about that little fragment, about the, the witch and the hawk? Well, I only do it so you, because you guys are doing it. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I, I wouldn't do that. But, but no, here's the thing. You're coming new to this process. So, you know, it's a new thing for you. So I just do it along with you because I want to give you moral support, you know, and, and do it. But, you know, I wouldn't do any of that. I mean, now I don't have to. I just think about it, and then I start typing. You know, I don't do it in a notebook or any of that stuff, you know. Did, did you, like, once upon a time when you were getting started was... Um was that part of the process, or that stop? That step was just completely internalized as it is now. No, I mean I did everything in, in the in the beginning. I did all, I, I made all the mistakes and stuff, and I still do make a lot of mistakes. But you know, uh, I did everything I could possibly try, and then I can't, what what you have to do as a writer is. I, I mean, I learned this uh, from Brookdale too, and a lot of the you know uh, the people there are theorists basically in uh, in composition. And a lot of the ideas uh, kind of coincided with the stuff I learned about fiction writing. Uh, you know, you have to learn your own process uh, and, um, you know, uh, who you are and then what your voice is. And it's going to be different than everybody else's, a lot of other people's. But the thing is, it's like, it's good to open yourself up to different ones because then you might take a little thing from it. You might take a little thing from here or something from there and put them in your bag of tricks and, you know, it helps. You know, knowing that and and learning that and thinking about that, it answered all my questions for you. Which I, you know, I, I thought I was going to talk all night about genre and you know genre this and structure this and structure that. But knowing that, it's easy to see why your um, a lot of your stuff doesn't fit neatly into genre boxes. And I do recall you, you you telling some of the people just starting out like, don't have that in your mind when you're starting out and when you're in the process. When when do you start thinking about genre? Um, in your process with some of your stories? Well, I usually don't, really, but I'll tell you how much I think about it. It's like Ellen's one of the editors I work with a lot in short stories, Ellen Datlow, and what I'll think about is, like, she'll give me some... There'll be some theme anthology, right? She does a lot of theme anthologies and some original ones, too, but then you get a theme like, uh, you know... YA vampire. I'm thinking to myself, that is the beatest fucking deal. All right? How many, how many times have I seen that? But then the thing is, it's like it's a challenge. Can you do something that's interesting in that, you know, in that uh, milieu? And then I'll think about to that to an extent. But I always want to try to, uh, I, I guess I always just come at it from different, uh, you know, directions. You don't, I don't want to do anything that's really, um, you know, that done before, I guess, is what it is. So then I think about that. Genre, I'm not really all that concerned about. I mean, I don't really read that much in the genre. I haven't read that much. I really don't like a lot of the people that are lauded. Asimov, can't read them. Heinlein, boring as hell. Le Guin, can't read her. Real distant and cold to me. Lovecraft, let's not fucking get started. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
I was told not to talk about that black. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so, if you're not thinking about genre, and um, your stories are not neatly fitting into genre, how? Um, what about fabulism? Like maybe even I'm not sure of the exact definition, but often fabulism is that kind of story that it's using it's using some literary devices, it's using um, pieces of genre, but then expectations either intentionally, some, some authors are intentionally uh, seeking to subvert expectations, and perhaps some authors like you are just organically doing it. How do you um, feel your work fits in with like the fabulous movement, or just fabulism in general? Well, I like fabulism because it, it mixes re reality, re real life with the fantastic. And the whole thing is, as far as genre goes, I just consider it all the fantastic. And the thing I like about that and I lean toward in my writing is that, you know, the books sometimes are less so than the stories. But what, what I lean toward in it is the fact that the fantastic can get at um, issues in everyday life that are sometimes impossible for you to, to uh, get down on paper. Maybe perhaps because of your own... Uh, you know, psychology or your own experience, and sometimes because these are just ineffable things that happen to people, but they just cannot, they can't express them. But in a, in a fantastic story, you might be able to find the elements to do so, you know? And that's what I like about all the, the different horror, uh, fantasy, science fiction, uh, you know, uh, magical realism, whatever you want to call it. It's, it just all seems the same to me, you know? One of the things that I like um, about certain certain parts of genre, and one of the things I really like about your work is that the thing, the fantastic element, let's just call it that, like you know, the thing that's happening in the story, it's presented and it's presented concretely, but it's not um, presented like with an explanation. Like for example, I mean, I haven't read the YA vampire story, but I'm saying in a, in a vampire story, this is a vampire and it can only fly in night, and you chop off its head, and that. And that is the rules to it. Often, the magical, the strange, or the unexplained in your story um, is not explained, but it's there to serve either as the motivation or the catalyst or something about um, the journey the characters are on. Can you speak about your, you know, relationship that's like the strange and unexplained in your fiction and in fiction in general? Well, I mean, you know, most of the stuff. There's a there's a big difference between a ghost story written you know, 19th century ghost story or most ghost stories. And ha has anybody here ever had a situation where they've encountered a ghost or a haunting? I'm sure somebody here has. And the thing is, is like, you know, my buddy pointed this out to me. He said I was at a party and I, I looked into this, uh, I was sitting there drinking and everybody was talking and everything. I looked into this hutch across the room and there was like a gaucho in it laughing. You know what I mean? I saw this thing so clearly. It was like a ghost. But he said, it's like the banal of the paranormal. It's like, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a lot of, a lot of our, a lot of our uh, supernatural experiences and stuff, they don't add up to anything. You know? And so I, I kind of take a little bit of that and then a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the old-fashioned kind of supernatural story where it resonates with the character and so forth. But I like to get that feel that, like, um, you know, maybe sometimes you don't really uh, know uh, what's going on. I did a story 
that's going to come out in the next collection called, um, I can't remember what the hell the name of it is, uh, The Five-Pointed Spell. And the story is uh, about things that happened to me, unusual things that happened to me, that happened all around a certain time period and seemed to be connected, but I never really figured out what the hell it was about, you know? But, I, but in this story, I just let it be that I couldn't figure out what the hell it was about. Whereas most of the time you try to bring them together into a, you know, into some kind of uh, uh, plot line and so forth. Does that make any sense? I oh, it, it makes it makes perfect it makes perfect sense. Um, I mean, there are a lot of. I was going to ask you about ghost stories, but we got right to it as we get nearer to hearing your next ghost story in the next part of the uh, event. But um, yeah, there are some kinds of ghost stories that do have a plot. And can you tell us about some of your favorite ghost stories that you know? I know. Um, I'm not sure if we would call Aikman ghost stories, but in some of his stories, like, um, it sounds like you're describing Aikman's stories to me, where it's like, yeah, it does, maybe it doesn't matter, or maybe... Well, I always love that ambiguity. I mean, that's, he writes, there's always some ambiguity in his stuff, and I always like that, you know, because you get, you get more bang for your buck. Uh, it could go one way, it could go the other, both ways are kind of interesting, you know? But my favorite ghost stories, I like uh, The Christmas Carol, is such a great ghost story. I mean, in a way that's just not the kind of thing I would write. But it, the, the only story, the first story, I get one of the only stories to ever scare the crap out of me when I was a kid. Nine years old, I read The Phantom Rickshaw by Kipling. And his stories, his ghost stories are amazing, I think. Some of the best stuff. Um, trying to think of other ghost stories. I don't know. I read some. I read them quite a bit, but I can't think of anything else right now. How about um, oh the uh, the return of Imray, that's a ghost story. The return by him of too. Imray. Yeah. Who's that by? That's by Kipling by too. By Kipling. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and also by I'm sorry. No worries. Keep Isaac Bashevis Singer's uh, uh, the cafeteria. Uh, you know his stories, his supernatural stories that take place in New York, they're amazing to me. Um, and um, he has quite a few ghost stories. And it's a whole, they take place during, you know, he, he emigrated to New York, and uh, it's, you know, the, year, the years of the automat and all that stuff, and they're ghost stories that take place around that, you know. So the wedding day or the demon lover, I'm not sure if I remember the name. Some of them take place back in Poland, yeah, but there's the ones that take place in New York I really love. I wanted to ask you about folklore, um, often, or sometimes folklore um, does, does appear in your stories, be it uh, original folklore or sometimes um, folklore of, uh, that is existing. Yeah, uh, I, I like to make up things that sound like they could just about be real. So I did a story for Ellen for her doll collection, about like creepy stories about dolls. And I had this one... That's what I was thinking of. I think, what's the name of that story? That, uh, the Word Doll. The Word Doll, yeah. The word doll. And I made, I made it take place in Ohio, <laughs> and it was take place, takes place in the 19th century, like, turn of the century, basically, and the, uh, the Word Doll is this thing that they, this, they have this person comes at night when the kids get to just about the age where they go out in the fields and work, but to keep them on target... They, this person is dressed up in a weird outfit and like a blue stuff on their face. No, there's a false face mask they find in the ground. The false face was a, a Native American thing, and they use the, the mask, and they go visit the child. 
right before they go out into the fields for the harvest time and imparts to them a word doll, like the, uh, a, a thing that is implanted in their mind, just through words, you know, and they're supposed to play with that in their head, that doll, um, while they're working. The only thing is, because uh, <laughs> it goes bad. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more, but I read it a couple of times and people came up to me and said, it, that's real, right? I mean, or people have said to me, I looked that up to find where that was. Because it starts very, a lot of my stories start in the real world. And <laughs> that one, I'm outside writing, and I go to the town every day and buy cigarettes and coffee and come back and write out under the apple trees and stuff. So I make it real, seem really kind of real. And I have the, the descriptions of the, of the area that we live in out in the farm country, and we know some of the farmers out there and stuff, so it, uh, you know, you want to make it real, and then when people start to believe it, then you start to filter in the slow creep, you know, <laughs> and uh, that's like a classic 19th century ghost story. You have basically in horror, you have that, or you got Kafka, the guy, you know, after a night of troubling dreams, Gregor Samza wakes <laughs> to find that he's been turned into a giant cockroach, you know what I mean? <laughs> Those are the two basic approaches for horror. It's either the slow creep or the, ah, you know, you're off kilter right from the start, you know? In the word doll, it seemed like there were two layers of folklore going on. There was the actual folklore of those word dolls, and then there was, it seemed like the local tale of what the, either what the boy had become, or the, there was the, you know, like a, sometimes in the hills you would see yeah. this boy uh, going away. And so you're saying, were both of those made up, or were both of those were actual folklore? It, I'll tell you, it was all made up. It, all of it was made up, except for the the fact that he hides the, the he becomes this like killer, and he hides in the corn, and this happened by us. I mean, there was a guy who escaped from a road crew on Route 70, ran down and hid in the cornfields until like he was in there for weeks. He had had training in special services, you know, special forces. And he lived in the cornfields, and there were cops on every corner with, like, shotguns waiting for this guy to pop his head out. So I, I stole that from having seen it, you know. Finally, he escaped the cornfield. They had cops all over the place. He got out, he stole a truck, and they caught him, like, two towns away. You know, whatever the process we talk about or we use, it's like, you know, the writer's job is to, when you're reading a story, to have the, uh, the reader not know or maybe not even care if, if that folklore is real or not, and you, you certainly did that. Um, is it the same, to, um, would you put cryptids and like cryptozoology in that same sort of a category, and is there a local or any cryptid that catches your imagination? <laughs> well, we were talking about this the other night. Uh-oh, what's that? It's supernatural. What happened? Nancy? <laughs> Maybe that was uh, censoring that question, huh? <laughs> All right. Let's give it a try. Hello? Yeah. I don't think I've even been using this thing. Uh, cryptids? We were talking the other night, I was talking to Dan the other night about, uh, in Ohio, they have a, a cryptid. It's the uh, Loveland Frogman. It's supposed to be like a frog and like an anthropomorphos frog that walks around. So I was I was kind of pitching this TV show, like where for HBO or something, where we drive around. Maybe me and Lynn could drive around and interview people about the Frogman and try to find it, you know. And you know, 
fuck the frogman. We're never going to find him, but it would be an interesting show, I think. Something touched me. If I could get somebody with a suit to act every once in a while, like dart across the screen, I know we could sell this to the Travel Channel or the Adolf Hitler Channel, that one, you know, where it's Hitler 24-7. I know we could get a, get a show on there. Anyway, I think this thing's falling apart. All right. Well, we've got one or, one or two more questions before we get to your reading. Um, without, uh, without telling us uh, what the story is about, can you just give us... Um, a bit or two about the process or inspiration for the ghost story that you're about to read after the break. Yeah, this story, this story came from this house across the field. Lynn and I pass it all the time. We both pass it on the way to work, and we talked about it before. I mean, there's never anybody there, but like this, in the morning somebody puts a geranium out and takes it back in. It doesn't happen all the time. There were kids there at one time, and the kids aren't, aren't there anymore. And, I don't know, stuff changes incrementally, but we never see anybody there. So we started calling it the ghost house. And we discuss it occasionally, and, you know, to catch up with each other on what we've seen over there, you know. It's right diagonally about a quarter mile across the field from where, if we sit in the back, we could see it. You know what I mean? But uh, that's, what, that's where it came from. All right, thanks, Jeff. Let's, uh, let's call it, uh, wrap up this first part, and let's take a brief break. Everyone here can uh, hit the restroom, drink up, fill up your glasses, and we'll come back, and we'll introduce the story, and Jeff's going to read his uh, forthcoming story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cookies, like Sam, like I have a Sam. And coffee. And coffee. I want the turquoise Crocs. You'll get them. Jeff, is that good? Yeah. I'll make myself useful as a light stand. You're going to be able to hold it the whole time? Yeah. All right. As long as I won't. All right, welcome to part two of um, the event. This is the part where I will not light Jeff on fire because I will be using digital means of lighting. So, Jeff, if you'll... uh, do you want this um, uh, well, some? I think I, I think I don't think I really need it. Him? Nick, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. All right. I, I think no, it's no, all we're right. recording. We're recording on that. So. Okay. Um, this is this is a story that's going to appear in a big anthology uh, from Saga, from uh, Simon and Schuster, edited by Ellen Datlow, sitting right there. Yay! I'm blocking her. And. Uh, I don't know, there's a ton of stories. The thing's a doorstopper. I have, we have a copy. We, she gave us a co- copy the other day. Yeah. How many pages? It's like, it's this, I know. It's this big. It's like a phone book. What's the name of it again, Jeff? Echoes. It, oh, the name of the story. No, the Alan's Anthology. Echoes. The Saga Anthology. It's from, it's from uh, Simon & Schuster. It's coming out in August. Anyway, his story is called The Jeweled Wren. On a late October afternoon, the sun still casting a weak warmth, Gary, 68, a large man with a drastic crew cut, and Harriet, 65, a small woman with big glasses and short gray hair, sat out behind the garden on the green plastic bench, drinking bourbon, taking in the autumn wind and looking out across the stubbled wheat field toward a house a half mile distant. They talked about their daughters, grown and moved away a decade earlier, how the cut field looked like a Bruegel painting, 
Harriet's uncertainty about the woman at work who would soon replace her when she retired. After that burst of conversation, there was silence. Gary broke it by asking, what'd the doctor say? Drink more bourbon, she said, and Gary knew because he'd known her for 44 years to change the subject. So did we ever decide what the fuck is going on over at that place, he asked, and pointed with the hand holding his drink at the distant house. She had a blue blanket wrapped around her, one corner thrown over her head like a hood. If you notice, there's all kinds of action, but it's all subtle, incremental, and you have to be aware when you drive past. I notice the hanged geraniums that appear on the porch certain mornings and disappear by noon, he said. Harriet nodded. For three weeks this past summer, I swore someone had a tomato garden going behind the place, but when I slowed down and concentrated, there was nothing there. Have you, have you seen the two little blonde girls playing outside lately? I haven't seen a person there in months, she said. There was a yellow car in the driveway when I drove past a couple of weeks ago. It was the only time I'd ever seen it there. Might have been an old Mercury Topaz like we had back in the 90s. Never saw it, she said. The circumstantial evidence of for being haunted kind of adds up, said Gary. We should go over there and look in the window, said Harriet. Why? I have the next five days off from work, and I want to do something crazy while I can. <laughs> she poured another drink and held it up. He touched the rim of his glass to hers. You mean go across the field, Gary asked? Now that it's cut, it'll be easy. With my bad leg, I'll get you a cane. You've got to get up and move around anyway. That's what the doctor said about that IT band syndrome. But what if someone actually is living in there, and we look in the window and they see us? We'll be fucked. Even without the bad leg, well, at, that sta at this stage of the game, running's out of the question. There's nobody over there, Harriet said. The car probably belonged to a real estate agent. They sat drinking, watching the wind shake leaves from the giant oak, white oak and the turkey vultures circling over the field until the sun set a little after five. Then she helped him up, uh, helped him up, and as far as the garden, eventually he got his leg going and passed beneath the apple trees on his own. Inside, she put the news on in the living room, and he fed the dogs. In bed, they talked about her looming retirement. He already only taught part-time at a local university. Did they really need six acres and a 120-year-old home? They arrived at no answers. Luckily, the haunted house across the field wasn't mentioned. He thought that was the last he'd hear of a trip to it. But the next day, she returned from Walmart with two flashlights and a cane. <laughs> He asked, when, he asked when, and she told him, by cover of dark. You mean tonight? You mean tonight, he said? She had a brief coughing spasm, the likes of which she'd been having fairly frequently of late. She nodded. Before he could complain, she caught her breath and said, Hold on a second. Didn't you ever really want to just know what the fuck was up with something? I guess, said Gary, but, well, that's what's going on here. You and I, just us together, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Let me see that cane, he said. He pictured himself out in the cut wheat field, lurching forward, the cane snapping beneath sudden weight, and then a face-first dive into the mud. She handed it to him, and he said, It's a cheap piece of crap. That's a cane for training horses. Perfect, then, she said, and handed him a flashlight. The sky was clear and full of stars, but it was cold, and he felt it in his hip. Every time he leaned on the cane, it sunk two inches into the damp ground and set him off balance. Still, he took a deep breath and launched himself forward into the night. 
She helped him along through the orchard and past the garden to the edge of the cut amber field where she let go. He stumbled through the wheat stubble toward, I'm sorry, he stumbled toward the wheat stubble toward an old white house, invisible in the distance. Fifteen minutes later, she stood in the middle of the miles-deep field, smoking a cigarette and staring at the moon. She'd been there for nearly five minutes already, waiting for him to catch up. As he scrabbled toward her, she said, How's the leg? Hurts like a bitch, he said. I think I feel, I think, I think I feel bone on bone. This is no IT band syndrome. Don't give me that bone on bone business, she said. Pick up the pace or we'll be here all night. He stopped next to her and turned to take in the enormity of the field around them. I know why those turkey vultures were circling above here yesterday, he said. They were feeding on the last two nitwits who decided to do something, something crazy. She laughed and they walked together for a while. From a quarter mile distance, they could make the place they could make the place out, but was left of its white paint reflecting moonlight. She strode ahead impatiently, and he hobbled over the lumpy ground. Somewhere in the middle of their approach, he had a memory of the two little girls, both in frilly white dresses, playing in a red plastic car with a yellow roof. One seemed to him a year or two older than the other. Harriet slowed down and pointed, check it out. There was a dim light on in the upstairs window at the side of the house. Did you see it there before, he asked? There was no light there before, right? You know, I'm not sure it's a light on inside or if it's from the moon, moonbeams directly hitting the window. As we get closer, we might find it's just a reflection. If there's a light on, I think we should turn back. We'll see, she said. In another, five, in another hundred yards, they saw it had been but a reflection and that the room was as dark as the rest. Near the border between the field and the barnyard, Harriet held up her hand to stop him. They stood in silence, she breathing heavily, he shifting his weight off the bad hip and relying on the fragile cane. There were four buildings clustered at the center of the property, all once painted white. The main house, a three-story Victorian with a wraparound porch like their own place, a barn, a long outbuilding, a kind of garage to cover a tractor and next to the white submarine of a propane tank, a smaller garden shed. <coughs> the yard was no less than seven acres, and much of it was covered with stands of black walnut. Pretty quiet, whispered Gary. Creepy, she said. It doesn't get to me in a creepy way, he said. It makes me feel like this location right here is so far from the rest of life it would take a week's walk along a dusty road to get within hailing distance of a Walmart. Where are we going to start, asked Harriet. I don't care, but no breaking and entering. The garden shed is probably bullshit, she said. The tractor garage, I can tell right now there's nothing in it. She turned a flashlight beam on the structure's opening, and the lights shone, shone straight through into a stand of trees on the other side. The barn is interesting, but it looks locked up. Let's start with the house. I don't care, he said. The place is dead. We're too late. Cheer up, she said, and crossed the boundary onto the lawn. We fought, he followed her, and immediately it was a relief to be able to walk on that on flat ground and not up and down that the furrowed, muddy, plowed rows complicated by what remained of the shorn wheat. They passed the oak, whose biggest branch held a tire swing, the half-deflated tube turned in the wind. Maybe we should sneak around a little first and see if we hear anybody inside. Okay, she said, and instead went straight around to the front of the house, stepped up to the parlor windows, turned on the flashlight, pressed a face to the glass. When he caught up with her, he stood behind her off the porch. What do you see, he asked. There's furniture and stuff in there. So they never moved out, he said. 
unless maybe they just left everything and fled. But they couldn't have because we saw them here as late as February. And I know I saw the girls one day in spring. Remember in March when it snowed eight inches? They had a, shed, they had a sled out in the yard and were pushing each other around. I'd seen the mother there quite a few times for a while. Young woman, short blonde hair. Harriet nodded. She turned away from the window. Did you ever actually see her face? She walked to the edge of the porch, and he took her hand as she d d descended the steps. They headed around the house to search for other windows. Now that you mention it, no, I never saw her face, he said. What about the guy? Did you ever see his face? No. I remember that guy always had on a plain white T-shirt. Plain white T-shirt and jeans, said Gary. Along the side of the house in the shadows near the chimney, she spotted, without use of the flashlight, a little set of steps that descended to a basement entrance. The door to the basement had glass panes still intact, and a glint of starlight caught her eyes. She stopped, backtracked, and only as she took the concrete stairs, flipping on her light, did Gary realize where, where she was headed. He watched from ground level as she descended. Well, he said, I have news for you, she called over his shoulder. This door is unlocked. Then he heard the screeching of the hinges as she pushed through the opening, stepped inside. He turned on his flashlight for the first time and gingerly descended, keeping one arm pressed against the side of the house and using the cane with every placement of his right foot. She'd left the door open and he could see her light beam jumping around the pitch, the pitch black room. The place smelled of damp and dirt. It was colder inside than it had been in the autumn field. The vault held one skid with boxes of what looked like looked to be Christmas decorations, wilted silver garlands spilling out the top, another few boxes also on skids, but those closed up and stacked neatly. There was the propane heater, the water softener, the fuse box mounted on the wall. A toad leaped across the dirt floor, heading for the shadows. At every corner of the basement, said Harry, Harriet, there's a plate with a rotting horse chestnut on it. Could be some ghost nonsense. It's to keep the spiders out of the house, said Gary. How do you know that, she asked. Some guy told me when I was out over walking in the preserve. There were a couple of those trees, and they dropped these weird green globes. I asked the guy what they were, and he told me all about them. I asked him if the spider thing really worked. He said, good as anything. Now what, she asked. There's the stairs up into the house. She pointed with a flashlight beam. Come on, he said. What are we even looking for, anyway? Anything ghost-like or ghost-related. <laughs> Let's go home, he said. She shushed him and started up the stairs. In the kitchen, they found dishes in the sink and a cigarette ash, as long as a cigarette on the counter. So, someone, some months back, left behind a cup of coffee and an English muffin with two small bites out of it. She opened the refrigerator. No light shone out, but a smell like death itself wafted through the room. She slammed the door closed. Bad meat, she whispered. The power's off to everything. God, that smell. Maggots are growing in my brain from it. She'd already moved on and was inspecting the cabinets. Look here. She quietly called to him. Her flashlight illuminated the contents of a cupboard. What do you see there? He moved closer and added the glow of his own flashlight. Six cans of beefaroni and a withered potato sprouting eyes. I'd say that that's a, a lot... I'm sorry. I'd say that's at least tangentially haunted. Does six, <laughs> does, six, does six cans mean they liked it or they didn't, he asked. From the kitchen, they moved on to the second floor where there were three bedrooms. He complained in whispers 
Throughout his awkward ascent, the flimsy cane without a rubber tip tapping loudly upon each step. Keep it down, she said as he hobbled up next to her in the hallway of the bedrooms. It was clear right away from the thumbtacked drawings on the doors that each of the girls had their own room. He surmised that the one at the far end of the hallway from the stairs belonged to the parents. Pick one, she said. We'll just look in and take a peek, and then we'll, spit. we'll split. The place smells like, an, like ancient ass. No argument there, said Gary. She took the left-hand side and he the, the right. They each pushed open a door, flashlight lit and ready. Harriet rummaged for only moments before discovering some pages of homework scattered upon the dresser. There she read the name Imsa Bridges. The girl's handwriting was very neat. Her theme was the Four Seasons. In it she claimed that the last days of summer might be the most beautiful of all. She likened winter to a sleep, and the autumn, heralded by the wind chime, was a season in which secrets, both hideous and bright, were revealed. Of spring, there was no mention. In Gary's room, there was a hole in the middle pane of the triple-paned window. It looked as if the glass had been suddenly put punched out. Rain had invaded and puddled on the floor. He could feel the inordinate dampness of the space. As he moved his flashlight around, he saw that shelves of fine blue fungus had grown all over the walls. From outside, there came a, a noise of tires on gravel, and in that instant, he looked down, and there was a picture frame holding a faded Polaroid of one of the girls. The frame was made of blocks and letters, and the letters spelled out her name, Sammy Bridges. Shit, he heard. He, he heard Harriet say across the hall. He hobbled toward a door, and as he did, she came out and whispered, Turn off the flashlight. What? Someone just pulled up in an old yellow car. <laughs> Fuck, he said. And with that word, they, they heard the front door downstairs creak open. She took him by the arm, and they moved along the hallway toward the last room. She whispered to him as they went, If I hear that fucking cane on the floor, I'm going to beat you with it. <laughs> From downstairs came a bellowing male voice, Sonny! The next thing Gary knew, he was on his considerable stomach on the floor, and Harriet was shoving while he shimmied under the bed. After he was hidden, she tiptoed around to the other side and got under. Once she was in place, they found each other's hands to hold. This is so fucked up, he whispered. <laughs> the voice called again, this time up the stairs from the first floor, Sonny! There were, there were footsteps ascending, as if that's, that started something in motion up on the third floor. They heard the screams of children and a woman repeating the phrase, Save yourself! The door opened. Somehow the electricity had come back on because light from the hallway streamed in from where they lay. They could see the, the boots, the jeans, and the bottom of the intruder's white T-shirt. They watched him open the middle drawer of a dresser and reach in. When his hand reappeared, it was holding a revolver. He left the room a moment later. They heard him on the stairway to the third floor. Hurry up, she whispered and slipped out from under the bed. She ran to his side, grabbed his arm, and pulled harder than he pushed to free him. The first gunshot upstairs went off, on, off as they clasped hands, and she helped him to his feet. Before the second shot went off, they'd reached the stairs. Gary was moving faster than he knew he could. The pain was there, but it pulled... It paled in relationship to gunplay. When Harriet opened the front door, deep screams of agony rained down from above. Gary went through the door left open by Harriet, but didn't count on the screen door that came back hard and clipped him on his left shoulder. 
It set him off balance when he went to take the first step down off the porch. His leg on the side of the, of the bad hip just suddenly gave out, as it occasionally did, and by the time he reached the yard, he was staggering toward a fall, madly employing unsuccessful cane work until his, <laughs> until his face was in the mud. Harriet helped her husband to his feet, brushed him off. He looked around on the ground for the cane and saw it by moonlight in two pieces. Why aren't we running, he asked her. <laughs> Look, she said, and they turned around. The car's gone, and the house is perfectly quiet. Well, we certainly got to the bottom of that, he said. <laughs> she, took his arm around, she, she took his arm around her shoulders, and he leaned a little on her with each step as they made their way back across the field. Despite how cold it had gotten, and that their words were steam, she sat on the uh, porch, low music, Three candles burning, bourbon and ice. He leaned back in his rocker and said, So what'd you make of it? You think he killed them all and then himself, she said? Or they killed him or the girls killed uh, the folks or the wife did them all or just maybe nobody killed anybody. Yeah, she said, the whole thing seemed kind of melodramatic. <laughs> did it ring true to you? He shrugged. All I can say is I was scared shitless. What about you? I'm not sure I even saw what I saw, she said. Some of it's vague, he admitted. Could have been like a communal hysterical dream between the two of us. After we got, after we got back outside, you took a dive. She raised her eyebrows and stifled a laugh. I told you that cane was for shit. Anyway, she continued, before I picked you up, I saw something hanging on the branch of a pear tree right in the front of the, the, the home. By then I realized the car and its driver had vanished. That's some haunted business right there, he said. Before I came back to pick you up, I, I stuffed this thing from the tree in my jacket as a souvenir. She took off her gloves, reached into her pocket. Slowly she brought forth something made of bright metal. She laid it on the table between them and he lit it with his flashlight. They were jewels, fake or real, he couldn't tell, in red, green, and blue. It was a bird in a nest feeding its chicks. Beneath him, beneath hung metal chimes on thick wire. It's a wren, I think, she said. She picked it up off the small table and stood. Leaning off the porch, she hung the wind chime on a branch of an ornamental maple, only an arm's length away. Before returning to her seat, she ran her fingers along the bottoms of the chimes, and they sounded like icicles colliding. She shivered and pulled the blanket wrapped around her over her shoulders. The wind picked up and the temperature dropped. They had another drink and spent the next hour talking themselves out of the experience they'd had at the Bridges' house. Eventually they sat in silence and soon after fell asleep, wrapped up against the cold and fortified with bourbon. The sound of the wind chime in their dreams was like, a ch like children giggling. A little before 4 a.m., he woke her, and they went inside and up the stairs to bed. Beginning the next day, there was an unspoken understanding between them not to bring the Bridges house up in conversation. When Gary went out to teach, he went the long way around so as not to pass the place. Only across the empty winter field, a dot in the distance on the brightest day, an impression of sorrow on a cloudy one, would he view the Bridges house. Harriet also avoided passing the place and drove the five miles out to the highway, no matter where she was going. Past harvest to the, to the first snow, Gary left the window open in his office. He counted on the cool air to keep him awake while he wrote. All through those days, as the 
last frayed threads of summer vanished, and the world turned toward darkness. The jeweled wren sounded, its intermittent tinkling, ever, ever a surprise. Its music leaked in through the office window while he worked and swamped his thoughts. Sometimes when he stopped typing, was starting, staring at the wall, the two blonde girls came back to him, and from some distant recesses in his memory came a bellowing voice, Sonny! Harriet sat on the, on the covered porch every night, no matter the weather. Fierce winds, frozen temperature, blowing snow, never stopped her. She put on her parker, cocooned herself in a blanket, and took her bourbon outside to smoke and cough or both. There were nights when Gary joined her, but often she sat by herself and decompressed from the day at work, inspecting and then consciously forgetting each incident from the office she ran. One night in early November, she heard a sound like angels whispering, and when she realized it was the chimes, she smiled and wept. They spent Thanksgiving together eating dinner at the uncertain diner. Later, there were drinks on the porch. She smoked and he fiddled with the music box he'd recently bought. It worked on Bluetooth and could play the songs stored on his phone. Three bourbons in, Gary, a fav Gary's favorite head music swirled the night. Harriet said, we've got to go back. At first he said nothing, but eventually he nodded and said, I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah. Tonight, she told him. One stipulation, he said, let's take the fucking car. <laughs> There are no, no other houses over there, and once you're off the road, it's so dark, no one will see, a, uh, see. I can park it in the empty tractor shed, and we can walk from there, she said. Solid. Above all others, what's the one thing you want to know, she asked. I'll start with a general what the fuck and proceed from there. I want to know the calamity of events that led to it. Led to what? Whatever tragedy keeps calling these people back. Jeez, he said, and poured them each another drink. Harriet drove Gary's CRV. They rounded the corner, and as the bridge's place drew near, she turned out the headlight and coasted through the dark. She slowly piloted the car in and around tree trunks and hid it in the old structure, as she said she would. Gary had a better cane, stronger, more to support the weight of an adult. It had a rubber tip and grips along the crook. His hip was worse every day, and walking was becoming too great an effort. But Harriet insisted he keep moving, so he did. They both wore all black and carried their flashlights. She brought, uh, she brought the taser she'd bought online. He'd, a he'd asked why she didn't just buy a gun, and she said, I don't want to kill anyone. How do you kill a ghost, said Gary. You know what I mean. She led him through the shadows, and he tried mightily to keep up with her. From using the cane, he'd adopted a uh, rocking side-to-side gate like he was a wind-up toy. The house loomed in front of them, and they slipped around the side to where the steps led down. They took the same route as they had before. This time they didn't inspect the basement, but went straight for the stairs that led up into the house. They passed the refrigerator and the chef Boyardee and went directly in the hallway of the second floor. Same rooms, he asked? No, up to the third floor. We'll be trapped up there. We have to get up there and hide before the whole thing goes down. Hide? Yeah, so we, so we see what happened. We need to know more. He shook his head but followed her up the steps, which led to a large room, a window on every wall. It was lined with carpets and plush furniture in a powder blue with silver trim that shimmered in the flashlight's glare. Find a place to hide, she said. 
He turned in a circle, looking for something substantial to hide behind, where it wouldn't discomfort his hip. But there wasn't anything that big in the room. I'm not getting on the floor again. Shh. Go in the closet over there, said Harriet, and pointed with the light beam. He saw where she meant, went to it, opened the door. It was dark and empty, damp concrete. Who has a concrete closet, he thought. He stepped in and closed the door over behind him, but didn't shut it. When he got in position, leaning on his cane, he peered out and around the room using the flashlight, finally found her ducked behind a sewing machine on a wooden box in the corner. The instant he spotted her, he heard tires on gravel. A moment after he doused his light, the front door downstairs flung open, and that voice called, Sonny! The light came on as a, at once in a silent explosion, and there was the mother and two girls sitting on couches. The girls were silent and stock still in their, wisp, in their white party dresses. From Gary's vantage point in the closet, he stood behind and above the blonde woman who sat at, on a divan in front of him. He watched her turn around on her seat, stare directly into the sil sliver of an opening he watched through, and pierce his eyes with her vision. Save yourself, she said, as if directly to him. That's when Mr. Bridges stepped through the door, head turned in a way that made it impossible for Gary or Harriet to see the man's face clearly. He wasn't, he wasn't in the door more than a moment when his wife told him the, the same. Save yourself. As he approached his wife, the two girls slid off the bench they were sitting on and fell to their knees. They clasped hands to pray and recited the act of contrition. While they prayed, a dark cloud began to form against the wall across the room. They prayed hard, in unison, eyes peering through the roof to heaven. The father lifted the gun and put it inches from the back of the older girl's head. It became obvious that the intonation of their words was the impetus for the cloud to make the shape of a man in a raincoat and hat. The vagueness of fog solidified into a cruel face, sharp like an axe head, but also handsome. He walked forward as in a slow dream and took the gun from Mr. Bridges' hand. Harriet thought, thought she heard cymbals clash, and next she knew the husband and wife were bleeding profusely from a hundred cuts each. The fog man moved, and with such speed and grace, she didn't see the blade until he was almost done filleting them. Seven more stabs between them, and the mother and father fell to the floor in puddles of blood. He called for the girls, still praying to follow him. They stood in silence and did as they were told. As they headed for the door, Harriet and Gary saw that at his edges, the man in coat and hat was beginning to transform, vines of smoke slowly twining upward. Just when a, a, a coughing fit seized her, the fog fellow stopped, spun around on his heels, and took in the parlor. Gary didn't watch, but he heard the words, You, in the corner, come out of there. His legs went numb, and his breathing became erratic. There was a struggle, and the stranger bellowed, Come with me for a drive. Gary could tell Harriet was being dragged toward the exit of the, and the stairs. He lunged out of the closet as the sisters passed, knocking them over like pins at a split, his cane waving in the air. He clutched it near the rubber tip and swung the crook end at the head of the abductor. Harriet reached into her jacket pocket, took out the taser. She pressed the button to charge it up and then jammed it against the fog man's rippling neck. He was solid and, sm and smoke at the same time. With the addition of the electricity, his head lit up and he glowed green like an iridescent fish. The application of the cane nearly knocked him down. He staggered and Harriet broke free of his grip. 
Gary caught her in his arms. She turned and screamed, Get out! As the, as, at the ghosts. The man in the raincoat and hat turned to dust, and each of the sisters became a puddle. The lights were out. I'm never coming back here, Harriet said. <laughs> as much to the walls as to Gary. It's a trap. He said nothing until they were driving through the snow. It'd take us a hundred, hundred trips to figure that whole thing out. I don't want it anymore, she said. I don't want to know. I'm too tired. Gary and Harriet tried to forget the entire enterprise, but the sound of the chimes on the porch had the ability to drill through the walls of the house and find them wherever they were. Every time the wind blew that winter, they uh, contemplated the mystery, extrapolating scenarios based on the flimsy knowledge they'd gathered. By January, they were aware that every sound, sounding of the wind chime distorted time, lengthening seconds, shrinking weeks, twisting speed, and dealing crooked minutes. A year buzzed by like a mosquito, and they were retired. Hours became epics, and Gary and Harriet missed each other, passing along different corridors. Whole days went by, and he wouldn't see her, but he heard her above or below in the house and could call out, and she would answer him. He would call that he loved her, and she would answer the same. Different seasons, all but spring, came and went, and eventually her presence grew rarer and her voice quieter. One week enough, I'm sorry, one week cough from some far-flung room of the house, the sudden noise of a toilet flushing downstairs or the microwave dinging in the night helped him hold out hope that he'd run into her before long. Eventually, though, the distant echoes stopped altogether, along with the written notes she'd leave through her days like breadcrumbs on the trail. One afternoon, he found himself in the bedroom, unable to recall why he was there. He happened to look out the window and saw her standing in the driveway with two suitcases. She wore the beret she only put on when traveling. He couldn't believe it was her and tried to lift the window to call out for her to wait for him. His hip was so bad that by the time he reached the side door in the driveway, she was gone. He caught a glimpse of the yellow car turning out into the street and heading away. He staggered about to fall, and the blonde girls appeared on either side of him. They helped him into his rocker on the porch, pulled down the shade of night, and set the breeze blowing. "'Where's he taking Harriet?' asked Gary, the man with the raincoat and hat. "'Where?' "'Shh,' said Imsa. "'Every ghost story is your own.' Where's he taking her, he repeated. To find out, said Sammy, and their highlight laughter became the music of the jeweled wren. Thank you so much to Jeff Ford for that story. Let's take a quick break to get a drink, and we'll come back in a few minutes just for a uh, short third part of interview. I want out one more. It was like, but at least you didn't lay lid on fire. I wonder who Harry is. Yeah. I'm just going to make sure you can tell Harry. Not really. What house are you talking about? Yeah. I can't think for a sure. I'll show you next time you come over. <laughs> <laughs> next time yeah, I can I take a girl? picture of you, you and your wife? Yeah, sure. Right. You want to ask her? Right. Getting a picture. Right. 
Mark is with a C as well. Okay, all right, got it. Tara and Mark. <laughs> I know Steve got moved out of the ICU, which is... I saw uh, that, yeah. His pancreatitis, I don't know if you saw that. That's not good. No. 
That was really, that was such a good story. All right, we're going to... Pam, you guys can all see here. We'll let people stick around. Jeweled Wren. Jeweled Wren. We'll take this time just to make an announcement or two, just to, uh, so the name of that story is The, the Jeweled Wren, and that's from the, so the Saga Book of Echoes. 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 The Jeweled Wren from Echoes, the Saga book of the saga anthology of ghost stories edited by Ellen Datlow and that's coming out in August this right. August um, you know mentioning Ellen Datlow it's something I say at every nighttime logic but I'm saying it again because there are some new faces here uh, the third Wednesday of every month right here in, in KGB is a reading series called Fantastic Fiction it happens uh, every month the third Wednesday of every month it's highly recommended uh, to come and see great readers like Jeff Ford um, it's brought to you by uh, Matthew Cressel and Ellen Datlow. So uh, I really want to It's the best series. And uh, it was my gateway into learning about fantastic fiction. Um, so just just before I forget, can you? I have not read this story, but your, your buddy Jack told me to ask you about what's the story behind the story, <laughs> The Boatman's Holiday? Oh. Yeah. The Boatman's Holiday, as much as I can remember, <laughs> was this guy was doing a, um, a fundraiser for Penn International, and he asked me to write this story, uh, asked me to write a story, and it was basically focused on uh, people in, um, in, I guess, someplace in Africa. Somalia. Somalia, right. And for prisoners in Somalia. Journalist so prisoners. yeah, so I'm I'm sitting there in Jersey. It's a beautiful day out. The cat's in the window. The curtains blowing. You know, I'm like, what the hell do I know about prisoners in Somalia? You know, what I mean, political prisoners. So I had to come up with something kind of mythic. I thought would be a way to go. So I I thought about basically what that would be like. It'd be kind of like hell. So I I wrote about the boatman. Uh, Karen, the boatman who ferries the bodies across the river Styx, and um, it's a it's a story where he gets a vacation once every like millennia, or whatever you know, and he's gonna go. He finds this this person, one of his customers, or people he ferries over to hell. He he put he takes his the 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 coins off their tongues as they get on the boat, you know, and that's with his payment. They all have a coin. That's why people with old days, they bury somebody, they put a coin on their tongue. And he finds instead in this one person's mouth this little packet of like flesh and undishai, which is like in the middle of one of the, hell, the rivers of hell. But it's like it's a respite from hell. It's like an oasis. And he's going to take his boat and go there. And that's how the story starts, basically. So... I don't know what you want to know about it, Jack. What do you want to know? Well, just the fact that, that they were raising money for these journalists to try and defend them. Yeah. And and you said to me, you said, I don't know anything about prison. And all the rest of the stories were set in these very typical prisons. And you go, I teach world lit. I know prison. I know the ultimate prison now. So, uh, you did raise money, help to raise money for these 
for these Yeah, and then I, and then I, I took the story and I sold it to uh, FNSF, and for payment, I had them put ads for the anthology in it, you know? So I don't know if it ever helped. I haven't been in touch with that guy in years, but I hope it did something. Maybe one guy got out. I forget the name of it. I forget, I forget it. It was some guy in, in England that was doing it. That's all I could tell you about it. Yeah, it didn't it's happen. online for free now. You know, somebody redid it. Actually, there's a reading of it online. Uh, Starship it. Sofa. Oh, all right. We'll find it. I'll find, yeah. We'll look for it there. I couldn't find it in your bibliography. Um, I wanted to ask you, and we, we talked a little bit about the word doll. But there's something else that's really interesting about that story is that Jeff Ford appears in, in that story. Is is that Jeff Ford you? And if you could talk a little, also in, in Rocket Ship to Hell, there's a Jeff Ford that seems even more like you. Um, can you talk about you putting, you know, putting yourself, like you have a very strong eye, a very strong voice that sounds like you when you read stories, but what about the stories where you just cross the line and go full on Jeff Ford? There's a lot of stories like that. I mean, I could do a book of stories where I'm the protagonist in the story. And then I, got, I stole this from Isaac Bashevis Singer. I was talking about his supernatural stories, and the, the great thing about him is you kind of, like, knew he was writing about himself, like, in certain situations. So you get the reader in the sense of, like, you get, this, you get the sense of, like, somebody sitting across from you having a cup of coffee, and you're the writer, actually, and so you're writing the story, and then you start, you know, telling him the story and everything, like, elements of your real life and so forth. So Lynn's in a lot of stories, and uh, you know everyone. A lot of people know I have a wife named Lynn, so you put that in. You know, that's things about the house, people, other things people know about my life, and that's a good way to suck people in, you know. And then you you hammer them with the creepy sh stuff later. <laughs> you get him in the basement and him with the sledgehammer. You put a lot of your colleagues in your books. Yeah. I'm in one of your books, and it was like looking at myself in a funhouse. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys were you were running a mental institution. <laughs> and I wanted more mental people in there. Before, uh, you know, yeah, that's what you and Verone and uh, and Jim Cody. Yeah, and then there's another book where I uh, I had a demon eat uh, Tim Burke <laughs> and get indigestion. <laughs> no, I was just kidding. Um, a short, I'm not kidding, really. <laughs> Another short story I wanted to ask you about. I think you said is it a, the big dark pipe? Oh no, it's a the big dark hole. Yeah, I just read it the other night at another reading. Big dark hole. It's in Conjunctions magazine. Um, it's about this kid who crawls into a sewer pipe and doesn't come out, and it's all a speculation about what might have happened to him. And then the it's told from the point of view of a kid in the neighborhood, and then the kid, this girl that's one of the kids in the neighborhood, says this kid has to come to her house one afternoon, and he's like all excited because you know girls got, you know he doesn't know how to act around girls, and she takes him up to the bathroom, and she shows him that like these notes are coming up in the toilet bowl, <laughs> from the kid David Gorman, right, yeah. and uh, he's in love with her, but he's living under the in the pipes or something. <laughs> And then other stuff happens in it, and it gets crazy. And, uh... <laughs> the kid's brother... These were two kids that lived next door to me. And they had a hell of a life, man. The parents would beat the brother up because the, the younger kid fucked up all the time. 
And they left the older kid in charge of him, and he was always, like, getting in trouble, and the older kid would get beat up. Um, and uh, he's, always, he's worried about the kid going in the sewer pipe because he's afraid somebody will flush and he'll drown. And then the cops, he tells that to the cops, and they laugh, and they, said, they, said, they say to him, your mother should have flushed. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's funny too. It's, yeah, it's funny. It's sad. It's it's an, an amazing voice. One of the, what? Yeah, I've been thinking about the story all week, and the way the, the way the story ends up is that ultimately the, it is a transition from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. That so the story of the boy in the pipe is not only at the forefront of the narrator's uh, life; it's at the forefront of this town's life, and. Somehow Jeff moves the story throughout decades, and at the very end, what was just really moving to me is how it, like, both the, both the structure of the story and what was happening, like, the narrative, it sort of ends on a note of, like, yeah, now, now that the pipe isn't there anymore, and no one remembers, and I'm kind of the last one that remembers, and when I'm gone, his story's going to be gone, too, and, um... Incredibly affecting. Um, the big dark hole. Yeah, the, the big dark hole. <laughs> so how does it? Uh, how does it? Um, I was just wondering how your approach um, um, to maybe stories now, um, you know, as an older man, has has that changed at all for you? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it gives me it gives me different material to write about and see things from a different point of view. I mean, uh, you know. Um, Stories had a lot more action. I remember when I was younger. <laughs> now, now even my characters have a hard time getting around. You know? <laughs> but it's interesting in a way. You see things differently when you get older. A lot of stuff you get excited about when you're young, you don't give a shit about when you get older. You know, I mean, you know, what's good, what's the worst that could happen? And you know what the worst that could happen is. So, you know, it's no longer a big deal. But you know, you think about other things like the past and how it how it played out, and you get this perspective that's just different and something interesting to write about too, from a different perspective. You know, so it's 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 enriching. I hope to always be able to write. You know, and uh, no matter how old I get, I notice the readership for stories by people who are older is limited. Um, to like older people a lot of times which is a shame but you know I can't say I was any different when I was a kid I don't want to read that old shit forget <laughs> it <laughs> you know? um, so that's what it is I want to ask you about one more short story before we'll just ask you a question or two about some of your novels um, the one that's been on my mind is uh, maybe I'm saying it wrong Mount, Mount Chari Galore right Mount and, Chari Galore yeah. and they, that, in that story it features a lot of characters and they all have a lot of stories, and, and I perceive the story as just all these characters' stories were overlapping and interacting with each other. And it reminded me of something that you said, that stories are everywhere. Um, right. Maybe talk about uh, what that note me means to you. Uh, you know, when I was talking to these guys the other day in the class about follow a character, just see a character, any character, follow it. It's just like looking out on the street here. If you pinned somebody down and you, uh, you know, took them for coffee, uh, how long would it take before they told you something really interesting, uh, you know, that would make a great story or some element of a story where you would start? I mean, I, I, I like just sitting in places by myself and listening to people discuss things and talk because 
you'll always hear like some weird little thing that you can jot down and use later, you know? So uh, there's that, that, that's uh, what I was talking about. I mean, there's just stories everywhere. All it is is do you have the ability, are you in the right frame of mind to perceive them? They're, they're in, there's a million stories, you know, in the naked city, right? So remember that saying? That's what it's like. Uh, they're all there. You just got to be, be in the right head. Sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. Uh, and sometimes you have old ones that you store it away and then you bring them out, you know? Is that, that story, Mount Cherry Galore, it's about this woman who sells this liniment in this town. It's like takes place out in the country. And I'll just tell you one detail of it. She has a pet hog. Jundle? Called Jundle, who <laughs> drives around in her car with it, but sits like a human and smokes roll-ups. <laughs> you know, like cheroots. Smokes cheroots. And they go and deliver the medicine in town, and if anybody fucks with it, the hog takes, takes them out. <laughs> the hog works them over. <laughs> Amazing story. Um, how does your, your follow the characters approach and follow and reporting the characters approach differ or is it modified in longer stories like in your novels? How do you handle that? Well, a lot of my novels I do research for, they're historical in nature. They're, a lot of them are less fantastic in a way, although they all have some fantastic elements in them. But uh, the story is made the same way. You just get an idea and you go with it, but the, 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 uh, the research is done ancillary almost in the fact that it, um, you know, you have to know about the time, you have to know about what's going on at the time, and the research is just fun. I mean, really fun, to the point where the first time I did one of these, my editor said, Jeff, you got to get rid of it. This stuff is just slowing the story down. <laughs> you know, you can't have that much. A little bit goes a long way. So I had to really study how to write historical stories, you know. So uh, one of them I write from my from point of view of the person, and I realized, like, if, I, if you look at The Alienist by Caleb Carr, there are so many touchstones in that book. They, it almost crowds the story out. You know, you got you know, around every corner is Theodore Roosevelt or somebody else famous or some great statue or some amazing thing that happened at the time. And then I, so what I did was I read stories from that time period like uh, Henry James and Edith Wharton, they don't have any of that stuff in there. And I know, I know immediately it's from that time period. And what it really is, what you really got to capture is the voice. If you can capture the voice, you can capture the time period, you know. Uh, so I learned a lot from that and reading Andy Duncan's stories. And, um, you know, um, I guess the books are about the same, although the research does inform the story because I'm writing it on the run. But sometimes you just find stuff that just illuminates the story in a different direction and you follow that, you know? I don't know if that... No, I could tell um, you answered one of my questions I was going to ask you how, how research played a part. And obviously, you could, you could tell that you're one of these, one of these writers who uh, tells you really enjoy the research. So my question was, um, maybe it's asking it, is answering it. You have four, four novels, each set in a different time period in New York. Was that born to a degree out of, out of the fun of it, because you like you know, like the research and like the process? I like New York. I do like New York. When I wrote, I, wrote a, I wrote a novel called The Portrait of Mrs. Shaw Book. It was yeah. really like the first, first novel I really did uh, you know, for a professional press, and I uh, did the research on it. And what I found, I came into New York, 
And what I realized was that New York is like a palimpsest, you know, where it's, there's layers. And even though we're in the present time, you could still see, like, parts of the time period that you're researching, you know? And that world is only like a thin film of paint or like a fake wall away from, uh, you know, from where you're standing. That's fascinating to me. That, and, you know, I notice every time I come to New York, I see it less. But there's always some, you come around the corner, there's always some creepy, like, gargoyle head yeah. where nobody, nobody sees it. It's like I looked out my window at, at the hotel I'm at with Lynn now, and I looked up, and there's a bird stuck out of the building like this, looking down. It's not like it's standing there. It's like if it was standing, it would be standing like, you know how Batman and Robin climbed up a wall? That's, what, that's how it was. It just came out like this. And I didn't even see it at first. And then the the other day, I saw it. I looked up, and there it was, right there. I don't. How, where'd that come from? <laughs> Who put that there? Yeah. You must have been there for like you know a century or something. Yeah. Forgotten until somebody looks up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, story, I haven't been to yeah. London a lot, but I think London. I get that sense. Oh, London's, London's yeah, London's rich with that. Yeah. Describe. Um, so my last question is is about your. Um, your latest. We'll try to go into no spoiler territory because I know it's still on some people's reading piles. But, yeah, a lot. Uh, Ahab's Return. <laughs> Apparently a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the important thing, though, is that we bought it and it's in our reading pile. <laughs> and if you haven't bought it, his latest is... Did you say it was a pile? Is that what you said? <laughs> no, I said okay, it's in our reading, our, our reading piles so, right. um, and our bags. But So it's not a spoiler to say that um, part of the premise of the novel is that Captain... Ahab, famous Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, did not die, and he's back in Manhattan, and he's um, being followed around by a different character as he does what what it is that he wants to do. Um, so it seems like that's um, tailor made from, from this discussion and hearing about it's tailor made to your process. Um, is it sort of like a return to like you mentioned in in class that your first ten years were like very very fun because you got to sit around and do things and play play with the characters. Is that sort of a return to that kind of uh, feeling? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, novels are great. Uh, the thing is, though, is like something happened, I mean, something personal happened that I had to put a lot of attention into from the time I finished The Shadow Year to the time I wrote Ahab. But that's what's great about short stories. If you're also a short story writer, you can keep writing and you don't have to ha- do one of these things that you have to put an enormous amount of time into, you know? But yeah, Ahab is, uh, Ahab's on the loose in Manhattan <laughs> looking for his kid because yeah. he had a wife and kid, and the wife and kid think, he w- think he's dead because they read the book, Moby Dick, <laughs> written by Ishmael, right? The story told by Ishmael. And they come back to try to, he comes back and tries to find them, and, and the person in Nantucket tells them, uh, that he's that they moved to Manhattan to live with her aunt or something. I, I forgive myself. <laughs> anyway, they get mixed up with uh, uh, opium trade uh, and um, fake news and uh, and, and uh, nativists. Uh, you know, know nothings um, trying to make America great again. And it's a mystery, an adventure story, and deals with stuff from Moby Dick. But the big problem I'm having with it, I think, is people think you got to read Moby Dick to read this book, and you most definitely don't. You don't have to. 
you can if you want to. It'll add a little bit to it, but you don't have to read it. Have read Moby Dick at all. So go out and buy a few dozen copies. <laughs> Fun for the whole family. Yeah, the audio book is great. Trick or treats. Oh, the audio book really did come out good, and I'm not always crazy about them. But Are you, you know. Yeah, I, I was one of those people that I, I was slow to pick it up because I wasn't familiar with Moby Dick. But I have to, I'm reading it right now, and I have to say, just the the voice is absolutely delightful, and and the it wasn't it, uh, the the pace is um, and the, there's real there's a real sense of fun about it. That's not that I didn't expect it, but maybe from the subject matter, I maybe there was a part of me that wasn't expecting that. Ahab hooks up with a guy, and his who tells the story. He works for one of the penny presses at the yeah. time. Like this press that that uh, you know that's run by Hokum. Like he makes they make up absurd and scary stories. So it's told from that point of view. So when you're reading it, you're not quite sure all the time whether stuff's really happening or it's this outlandish story because this guy's writing it up. Because he, what he's doing is he's writing uh, their adventures and he's publishing it in this magazine called the Gorgon's Mirror. And so you, it's this uncertainty as to the nature of the fiction, you know, uh, that's part of it. All right. So I'm while, just making it more confusing. So. <laughs> no, while Stop we're all waiting for, the, um, for Echoes, the saga book of um, ghost stories to come out, we've got, we've got Ahab's return on our summer reading list. Yeah. And with that, let's just please give the warmest round of applause. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, everybody.